Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. So just a heads up, this episode contains discussions of depression, postpartum depression, and suicide. If those topics are not good for you to hear about, you may want to skip this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Amy Koppelman. In 2003, Amy Koppelman published the novel A Mouthful of Air, a compassionate and wrenching portrait of a new mother torn between the love she feels for her family and the voice in her head that insists they'd be better off without her. Since then, Amy has written two more critically acclaimed novels, one of which became the film I Smile Back, starring Sarah Silverman. Amy's new film is an adaptation of that first novel, A Mouthful of Air, a new edition of which was re-released in conjunction with the film. The film, A Mouthful of Air, starring Amanda Seyfried, is in theaters nationwide starting October 29th. The movie was written, directed, and produced by Amy Koppelman. Amy lives in New York City with her family. She is an outspoken advocate for women's mental health. Welcome, Amy. Thank you for having me. I loved this novel. I read it in two days, could not put it down. It's about a woman named Julie who, from the outside, she has it all. She has a loving, attentive husband. She has beautiful kids that are healthy. She has enough money not to worry. She loses the baby weight really quickly. Like everything seems like it's going her way, and yet all is not as it seems. And I'm curious why you created her that way. Back then, really, no one was talking about postpartum depression. And we weren't really even talking that much about depression. Styron had a great book called Darkness Visible, which was the first thing that I read that I was like, oh, that's what depression is. And so for me, it was really important to show that depression is an illness. And so I thought if you take every obstacle away from her, you know, all the things that would get in the way from healing, and yet she still can't figure it out. You know, imagine what happens if you add a subway stop. Imagine what happens if you're a single mother. That was my my drive behind how to situate her. I also have no imagination. So I <laughs> was like, well, I live on the Upper West Side, so I'll just keep it here. But that is what I thought. Take every obstacle away so that you can say, this is no different than if you had asthma or if you've had diabetes. You would go to the doctor and you would get better. And this is somebody who has health care and mm-hmm. has a support system and she and goes to the doctor. But the power of this illness, the symptoms kind of reaffirm the illness. There's probably a smarter way to say that, which I should learn. But, you know, <laughs> you're constantly telling yourself when you're depressed that there's no hope. 
that you're a terrible person, that you shouldn't be here, that everybody would be better off without you, that you're going to fail your children, you're going to fail your husband. And so those symptoms make actually going and trying to get better, especially more difficult. One of the things we hear a lot about it from our listeners is this kind of feeling of almost not deserving that space to be sad, to be depressed, to struggle with their kids because they do feel like their lives are going well and they have all of the kind of markers of happiness. One of the things that I think the book really captures is the loneliness of that feeling that the depression brings you this feeling of isolation. Yeah. I mean, you know, last month watching those mothers in Afghanistan, if you're at home with a baby in a house or apartment, a room that has air conditioning, forget air conditioning, that has walls, right? Walls, <laughs> right. Water, running water. What right do you have in any world to be sad, right? You mm -hmm. have no right. You are in a safe place. You have been given a healthy child, you know, you love this child more than anything. You've never felt even this kind of love. And yet you're just feel all alone and sad and undeserving. And that voice in your head just keeps reinforcing itself, you know, because you keep comparing. You go, look at the women in Afghanistan. Look at the homeless woman on the street. How are these people? I'm so lucky. And why am I like this? And that also just reaffirms the shame. And, yes. um, you know, I did not know what... I was writing at the time I was writing it. I mean, I don't think anybody sets out to write this novel. Like once you've written mm -hmm. it, you're like, this is never going to be a bestseller. Like <laughs> no one's going to read this. But I did know I was writing about shame and how women often judge themselves within the confines of that shame, whether it's like real shame for things that we did wrong or the shame that's been put on us by people telling us the things that we did wrong. And it's almost like that's the barometer of what we allow our experience of joy to be or happiness to be. But I also think that when people have children, the coping mechanisms that they've often had to like repress memories or other feelings come out because you look at this little child and they're so innocent and helpless. And no one really explains that to you. Like in mommy and me class, they don't really explain that all of a sudden one day, this thing's going to come out of you and look at you and think that you have all the answers. And it's going to be your responsibility to take that child to make sure they stay safe. And, you know, if you are the most healthy person in the world, that's a horrifying thought. So if you're depressed, the volume, you just can't adjust it. It's like you just can't reach the volume knob to turn down the knob to give yourself time to say, oh, wait, this isn't true. I'm actually maybe not the worst person in the world because that's all you hear. You can't hear anybody else saying, I love you. You can't hear anybody else saying, you're great. You did a great job. You can't feel the baby against your heart and against your chest. And instead of feeling the heart to heart, warm, wonderful feeling, you're feeling petrified. You know, what if that heart mm -hmm. stops? What if I, you know, and so that's what I did know I was writing about shame. To answer your question with the loneliness, we're so ashamed still even, still with all the conversation with, for me, getting to go and learn about like this whole mommy world. There is this whole community of moms, like actually really trying to help moms. It's not just like, mom's making the perfect sandwich. I said to my daughter the other day, thank goodness I wasn't a mom when there was Instagram because <laughs> I used to like cut things out like in heart shapes and decorate the bag. And now like on my scroll, I see like bento boxes with 
3D sandwiches that talk, you know, that are like, eat me, I'm really healthy. And it's just like, it's just too much. But the good part of that is there are people talking about this. So you're able to be less lonely, but have the anonymity of not being a face. But we have to get to the point as women where we actually talk about it in person in the mommy groups, in person, you know, at places of worship, you know, where we're not just talking about what we feed our child, but we're talking about how we feel and how we're worried about how that will affect our child. We still like really don't talk about that that much because we're scared that nobody else is feeling like us. And like I said, even the most healthy person knows it's very scary to be a mom. Yeah. You said in another interview that when you write fiction, that you try to get as close to the truth as possible, even if it's ugly, so that somebody else might read it and feel less alone. I think this book is so brave. And I really thought, wow, that's it. I mean, you go there in this book and you express things that every mother has felt at some point, even if it's for five seconds. And it's compounded by the fact that I feel this feeling and now I feel horrible shame because no mother ever feels this way. Just me that has these dark moments. And this book by going there really helps with that, I would think. There's a scene in the book, there's a variation of that scene in the movie where she's at this party and, you know, to her, everybody appears Perfect. Because what's also this weird disconnect is, of course, the people at the party who she thinks are, you know, who she doesn't even really like the other moms that all of us have been with that weren't necessarily people that we might want to be friends with. Like we think that they, everybody, whether we like them or not, it does not have these feelings, even though we know intellectually, like somebody else in this room has to be feeling the same way. We're talking to Amy Koppelman, who is the author of A Mouthful of Air, and we'll be right back. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses, first two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist-approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we? say, and making diaper changes a breeze. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, when I'm dehydrated, I get headaches. I get cranky and I don't feel good in general. Also, I am dehydrated a lot of the time. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because being good with the water bottle is one thing, but getting that sodium and potassium with the fluids, turns out that is the key to seeing optimally hydrated. So whether you're looking to hydrate during your workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, seven essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. Each box has 16 little stick packs that you can take on the go, whether you're headed to an exercise class, a night out with friends, or a podcasting conference. 
And did we mention they come in delicious flavors from raspberry lemonade to cherry pomegranate? Stay hydrated with Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes. Visit sportsresearch.com and use the code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H dot com, sportsresearch.com, and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate Electrolytes order. We're back with Amy Koppelman, the author of A Mouthful of Air. There's sort of two aspects of this that you get into in the book, this sort of internal shame of this is how I'm feeling. How can women in Afghanistan be in these horrible situations? Well, I should be grateful. And then there's this kind of societal shame that we were just sort of touching on. How can she be? So self-indulgent with the way she's feeling, or maybe realistically that friends of ours or maybe moms in your playgroup are looking and going, oh, this person doesn't seem like they're handling it very well. Is that something you think that has gotten better or worse with this social media kind of new world Instagram? Is that dividing us, do you think, or is it bringing us closer together? Well, I think it's a mix. And I think one of the things about when you're depressed or when you're just a mom is, you know, you're constantly looking for affirmation of where you're failing. You know, I used to say when mm. my kids were little, I'd go to bed every night and I'd say to my husband, well, you know, if I didn't fail today, then I must not have tried to be a good mom because like, <laughs> you know, you always go to bed feeling like you could have done this more. Or you should have done that more. So in terms of Instagram, like you can make it where the things you're looking for are those 3D lunches that you don't have time to make because you're working, you know, and you could feel like a failure. Those are the negative parts or like the women who have like lost so much weight so fast and you're sitting there and it's like eight months later and you still haven't lost the weight. Those are the negative parts. But the positive parts are that people are talking about this online. And like my daughter, who's 21 years old, a couple months ago, she sent me an Instagram post and she said, you have to meet this woman. Look at her. She's pregnant. And she's talking about perinatal depression. She's depressed while she's pregnant. And look at her like she's crying. And you should know this woman. <laughs> I was moved by that because I was moved that this woman was brave enough to be talking about these things while she was pregnant. But I was also moved that like my daughter knew what that was. It somehow mm. nearly came across her scroll. Why did that come across whatever the algorithm it was? And that she knew that that was something that we could talk about. So that dividing wall between at least the mother and the daughter, if she had those issues, she would know she could speak to me about them because I guess I've spoken to her. So I think this is a very, it always sounds like kind of corny, but like the two things that you can do are one, of course, you need to ask for help. But the other thing you need to do as a woman or as a mother or as somebody who has or, or maybe hasn't had this kind of, you know, terrible depression after having a child is when you're walking down the supermarket aisle and you see somebody who drops something and they're flustered, you know, if you actually take a second to look at them and see, are they just flustered with their kid in the supermarket cart? Are they okay? And sometimes if you just say hi to somebody and smile or, you know, you see it as an older mom, you see a new mom and you watch them and you kind of know when you go to the, you know, park or wherever and you see them, you can give an opening to somebody so that they could talk to you. And I think we just have to do that more person by person, just kind of literally and metaphorically, like put our arms around the younger mother and say, I felt this way or my friends felt this way. This is what's happening to you. It's no different than asthma. If you go to the doctor, 
we can get you better. You have bad postpartum depression and you go to the park and you have your baby on a swing. You put your little kid on a swing. You're worried about so many things. You're worried about is the baby going to fall out of the basket. Or if you're there and you're not worried about that, you're pushing the swing, but there's like a numb gauziness between you and the swing. And, you know, if you were at the park and you were having a hard time breathing, you would have no issue Mm. whipping out your inhaler from your jeans and, you know, taking a puff of your inhaler and then going back to playing with your baby. But self, somehow, as I keep saying in the intellectual way, the symptoms of depression just only reinforce the illness. You don't blame yourself for not being able to breathe. You do blame yourself for not being able to calm down or be there with your child. But if you're wheezing, you don't blame yourself. So why is this idea of saying, I'm having a hard time as a mom so hard? And I guess it's because your whole life, you know, you're raised that women are supposed to be maternal. Maternal means X. And nowhere in that narrative does anybody say to you, you might be petrified. Your hormones are going to play such tricks on you. You might be somebody who's never experienced depression and has this one-off of this happening. You might be somebody who's had depression, episodes of depression throughout your life. And now this is like a stronger, worse version. And also you might be somebody who was traumatized as a child. There's a big correlation between those things. And looking at that child and this idea of not being able to protect them when you actually are finally having like the visceral understanding of you having once been that little and somebody not protecting you, those things become overwhelming, no different than asthma, like asthma in your heart or your mind. But we don't allow ourselves to forgive ourselves for that because we do look around and think everybody else is okay because we're all smiling behind our strollers. You know, we're so I'm hoping that with the movie, I mean, Amanda's performance is so incredible. It's almost like too good. She feels so palpable and real. And I'm hoping that when people see the movie, they'll understand, oh, wait, I can talk about this because it's a I hate to say actors are brave because it sounds so silly, like firemen are brave, you know, but if you can be brave as an actor, this performance is very brave because, you know, she is just totally vulnerable And I'm hoping that the trickle down of that is people will say, well, if she can do that, either she as Amanda or she as Julie can do that, then I'm going to go online and look up Postpartum Depression International. Call Postpartum Depression International. They have people all over the country, you know, who you can meet and who will help you. And so I'm hoping in some tiny, tiny way we can get to people. Can we talk about how awareness and treatment of postpartum depression itself has changed since this novel first came out? It's been more than 15 years, right? And it it seems like there's more awareness, at least, of what postpartum depression is. Do you think there's more societal support than there was when the book came out? Yes, 100%. But I think there's also much more societal support than we think there is even now. Like, I would never have thought of writing this book if I knew it was going to be this book. This is not a book that you go like, oh, I'm going to adapt this into this particular three-act structure. <laughs> like, no, like, it's just not. Sad. But I was driving down the West Side Highway, picking my kids up from school, and I must have been listening to doctor's radio. And this woman called in from the middle of the country somewhere, and she was alone in her house, and she was crying, and she felt all these feelings and she was too ashamed. And the radio host said, well, you know, why don't you speak to somebody? I couldn't possibly tell my husband. Why don't you tell your mother? I couldn't do it. Why don't you go and speak to, you know, your clergy? <gasps> I could never do that. And she felt that she had nowhere to go. And I was just like, whoa, wow. I thought everybody was 
like totally cool with this now. <laughs> like I thought right. that, you know, famous people were talking about it. It's been on the cover of People magazine or whatever, you know, everybody knows about this. Isn't this great? Everything has changed. And then I heard this woman, this must have been like seven years ago. And I was like, no, I live in a city. So of course I think that, and yes, it might be on the cover of People magazine, which is national, but still we tell ourselves we can't talk about it. So I think there is much more external support and organizations and understanding of depression and especially now of mental health and the burden that's placed on the mother. I think people really saw that a lot during quarantine, but I think it hasn't translated to the person who's having it, if that makes sense. Personally. Yeah. Yeah. I had never taken antidepressant medication and then I had my son and I was a nervous wreck. I don't think I slept for like the first two weeks, I remember at some point thinking like, if only I had toothpicks, because if I had toothpicks, I could put them <laughs> in my eyes to keep them open. I've been there. Yep. I was so petrified. If I closed my eyes for even one second, something would happen. I can't look away for one second because something's going to happen and, and I don't want anything to happen to him. And then when he was around one or so, I finally went on antidepressant medication and, you know, all the kind of trope things of like everything did go from black and white to color. Like I could see things, I could feel things, all the things that they tell you about it aren't, you know, that people say that are negative about it aren't true. It's not like taking Xanax or getting drunk or even getting high. It's not something that's going to make you feel other. It's something that somehow makes you feel like yourself. And it's only once you feel like yourself that you realize like how far you've gotten from that person because you're so unwell. When I got pregnant with my daughter, no one really knew if you should stay on antidepressants or if you shouldn't, because would it come through your breast milk? And so I was like, oh, well, forget this. Of course, I'm not going to do this. I mean, I'm somebody who you know, wouldn't have taken an Advil unless I really, really had to while I was pregnant. I'm not going to take this. But again, I mean, not to keep going back to the same analogy, you would never say that about your asthma medication. You would never say like, I'm going to not use my inhaler for nine months. But in all fairness, we didn't know what it did. And now there's been enough time to see that it's safe. The fears of these big bad things happening when you're pregnant, if you take an SSRI have been disproven. So like you can take that safely. That's a change. You could know afterwards to go back on medication. You know, that's a change. You can ask for it. But still, you know, when you see the gynecologist at the six week moment, not all gynecologists test you to see what your thyroid number is. And that's also a very important thing. If you're feeling down and low after having birth, you could also just have postpartum thyroiditis. And so like that would be the first thing to get check to make sure that you don't just need more Synthroid. I actually had had that. I have both those things. But anyway, they don't all screen. You know, they don't all say, how are you? They might say, how are you feeling? Okay, great. You can go back to exercise. You can go to work. But they don't often stop and say, how are you feeling? And that's not necessarily the doctor's fault. Like it's also the system's fault. People don't have time Or sometimes the doctors don't know. Sometimes it's older doctors and they haven't caught up with this conversation. And so that's why I really do think, at least for now, it's up to us to go to look at new mothers as older mothers and to say, how are you feeling? And to actually give them some kind of signaling that they could actually tell you how they're feeling. Then even if somebody is telling you they're great, but you have a feeling they're not so great, to check in with them. And I think if we can do that, almost mentor younger mothers, like care about younger mothers, then we'll be able to compensate where there are holes. 
We're talking to Amy Koppelman, the author of A Mouthful of Air, and we'll be right back. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E, lumen.me, and use the code FRESH at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, we're back. We're talking to Amy Koppelman. She's the author of A Mouthful of Air, which is also now a movie written, directed, produced by Amy. Can you tell us a little bit about how moving the book to a movie changed the story? Yes. I, when I heard you say written, directed, and produced, I thought, boy, at least all the blame is on me. <laughs> <laughs> or all the glory. Maybe all the glory. And I was just like, maybe that's a good thing. Because I know when my last book came out, I was very disappointed with certain things, the movie on my last book. But when you said it like that just now, I was just like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> that's really happening. Felt that little surge. <sighs> I can't blame anybody else if I'm around. <laughs> and tomato. The fact that that's a metric in my mind, talk about feeling ashamed. Yes. That actually, by the way, is warranted oh. shame that I can, you know, actually look at rotten tomatoes and go like, oh, I'm so dumb, <laughs> but I'm so bad at this. So it's very exciting. I honestly can't believe it. The book got rejected. Truly, like this isn't apocryphal by basically every agent in New York. It took so long to get the book published. I finally found an agent in San Francisco named Amy Renner. She got it published by an independent press. It came out. It had like two printings. And then, you know, that was the life of the book. And then 
not until I heard that interview that I was telling you about did I think, Mm. oh, I should bring this back alive. Like this still matters. And now seeing that it's going to come out in 800 theaters, that's like 800 communities. That's 800 places where like this story can possibly touch people and help people. Not until just now when you said that, did I have I stopped to think of like, oh, what if people don't like it? I've just, in my mind, have just been like, you are going to be able to get to some of those people that you didn't have the ability to get to the last time around. And I know for me, reading was really so much of a salvation. It was so much how I learned that I wasn't alone or I wasn't as much of a freak, you know, you read something and the author of the thing you're reading is able to put into words or, you know, their characters, words, these thoughts and feelings that you might not even have known that you've been feeling. And then you read them and you're just like, yes, that's exactly how I feel. They're able to articulate that so that you have this connection and, you know, somebody whoever wrote this book and that person exists and you are not the only person who feels this way. So now I'm thinking, okay, there's 800 theaters where people can see this and it's so much easier and more fun to go to a movie than to read a book. (laughs) And so I'm very excited about that. I'm really proud of Amanda's performance. She gives a profoundly beautiful portrayal of like, I keep saying, you know, how scary it is to be a mom. All moms can relate to that. And I'm hoping that it makes the places that aren't cities or the, you know, the towns or the communities that don't talk about this, that in some small way, we get to some of them so that, you know, people aren't as scared to go into their church or people aren't as scared to tell their doctor because they can say, oh, it's like this movie or people who love somebody like this can see this movie and be like, oh, geez. And I tried really hard in the movie to show that her husband, you know, when you love somebody who's depressed Depression has collateral damage and suicide is the worst thing you could possibly do. But even just the depression alone has collateral damage. Your kids feel it. Your husband feels it. And if you're somebody who like Julie had tried to kill herself, you've put your spouse, everybody who loves you in a very difficult situation because no one wants to be the person that hurts you. They don't want to hurt you. And so somehow it like makes the people who love you almost, you know, impotent to do anything because they don't know what to do. So maybe if they see this movie, they'll at least be able to say to somebody like, look, this is what I'm seeing her doing. She is acting like this person. And I'm really scared. I do not know what I'm supposed to do. And maybe that will help that person be less of a prisoner because you do become handcuffed when you love somebody who you're worried about. I do see women, I feel like talking more about their anxiety and depression. I see those conversations happening. And I do note that when I talk to my mother and people of her generation, that they talk about stuff. And I'm like, that was postpartum depression. Somebody said to me once about being with their little kids, like I was in a basement apartment and all I saw all day was wet feet. And I just stared Mm -hmm. at wet feet. And I was like, oh, you were depressed. That was postpartum (laughs) depression. And I see those conversations happening. But I think this metaphor that you have about using an asthma inhaler is also really interesting for us as observers that in the same way that you say you wouldn't feel guilty about using an asthma inhaler. Similarly, you might see someone struggling with depression and a mom struggling and think, oh, well, that doesn't really involve me. That's not really my problem or or I shouldn't get involved in that. But if you saw that same person struggling to breathe, your instinct would be to run over and figure out how to help. That's an aspect of it. I think that's really interesting. How can we help people help moms who are struggling with this kind of depression? What you were saying made me think that 
also you'd call home and you'd be like, I'm at the park and I left my inhaler and you know, and your spouse or your partner would have no problem coming to help you. But I think the whole topic of what it is like to become a new father, how isolating that is, how you feel outside the two of them. I mean, there's so many things that make being a father difficult. I do think that that is a topic that nobody talks about because that would make, you know, that's a weak thing. And I think that that's a very big problem is that we still look at depression. And again, the depressed person does this more than anybody as being weak. It's like weak and strong versus well and unwell. And Mm. we have to somehow like bridge that. And if you love somebody like this, if you're married to somebody like this, if you think that they are having an asthma attack, take them to get an inhaler. Like it sounds like such a stupid analogy now that we've brought it even to this length. I'm like, oh my God, am I still using this analogy? But it's actually, it's a perfect analogy. We're big fans of analogies because it helps us understand sometimes big complicated things. But he's a good husband. I mean, Julie's spouse in the novel, and I'm assuming in the movie too, like he's trying really hard. He's doing everything right. I thought it was a really interesting choice sort of dramatically that he's not abandoning her. He's really doing his best, but the depression is bigger than both of them. So he, it becomes more complicated than asthma because it's a lot less clear cut what's going on. Right. Yeah. So if we kind of could explain to people, this is what's actually going on. Look, until there's a way to quantify what's actually happening, until there's a blood test or a way to measure, you know, you have a hard time breathing, you go, you breathe into that little ball, the doctor can say, oh, you need this, you need one, you know, whatever it is. I think that all of us, including myself, are going to always question, is this a real thing? Because like, look at those women in Afghanistan, somehow they don't even have beds. And they so they were able to get out of bed this morning, (laughs) which wasn't even a bed and get to the airport and try to escape. And I in my house can't figure out how to get out of my clean sheets to get to the kitchen to make a cup of coffee. What right should I have to be alive? Like it only reinforces it. So I tried to make Ethan the same as everything else for Julie. I didn't want it to be in reaction to having a husband that wasn't there. I didn't want it to be in reaction to having a husband that was mean to her, cheating on her, uh, an alcoholic, abusive. Even I, about a month ago, when I started speaking to people on Zoom, and I was getting confused with time because it's been such a long time since I've had like a real episode of depression. Even I called my psychiatrist and I made an appointment to see her and I said... Did I have postpartum depression? Like, did I ever really have depression? Mm. Because I feel like when I'm talking to people, like I'm lying. Was it that bad? Like, was it, you know, when you first saw me before I had kids, because when I had kids, I never had wanted to kill myself, not for like a second. But when I, before having kids and I was in a very dark place, I mean, I know that feeling. And so I was like, I know all those things happen, but even me now, I'm thinking, oh no, it's not real. I'm not real. I'm making this up. And I mean, I've spent my whole adult life talking about this. And finally, maybe what I've been talking about and where we are and how we're thinking about mothers and community are all going to dovetail. And instead of feeling like this huge sense of relief, like maybe you're going to get to a point where you're not like screaming into an abyss, which is what it was like when it started. I'm like, oh my God, this doesn't even exist. I never even had it. And that's like the trick that your mind plays on you. And it's one of the things that people have asked me about with the film is this idea of why would anybody ever feel that they would be at peace if they weren't alive? Why would somebody think that 
the best thing that they could do for their children, who they love. Like, that's the other thing. I really wanted to show a character, just like taking away those obstacles. I didn't want to show depression as a dark, emo kind of thing. That's never what broke me. Mm. What broke me constantly was the beauty, beauty of everything, my children, the beauty of the love I had for them, the beauty of like the little yellow flower punching through the snow in the spring, the fact that knowing that everyone you love and you care about, you're going to have to say goodbye to. All of that was just so overwhelming to me. And I couldn't get past it. I know that all happened. And yet part of me and still I can break from moments from time to time. But it's a confusing thing. I do think there's that distance between, I was saying on a recent podcast, I was looking at my new niece and I said to my husband, why don't I remember having a baby girl? There's a fog that envelops some of these experiences in our, in our lives that I think is, it makes some of them kind of hard to access. I have pictures of me holding a one-year-old girl. I did it, but why don't I have access to that anymore? It's in the fog somewhere. Yeah. In retrospect, I think I was writing through the fear of what if I hadn't gotten the help that I needed. And mm. when I had gone off the medication to have my daughter, I was basically praying to the bottle of Zoloft. I was like, you know, 42 more days, 39 more days. Oh my God, tomorrow I'm going to be able to take this and I'm going to be able to feel better. I'm going to be able to lift my son up without being where, you know, I wasn't petrified that I was going to drop him and where I actually had the physical strength to carry him around. And then I gave birth to her and I put her against my chest and she began breastfeeding and she was such a good little breastfeeder and she was so beautiful and small. And I thought, well, I basically lived like this my whole life. Then I had this like respite of, you know, everything being different. And then like, what's six more weeks? If I could just breastfeed her for six more weeks, I can give her every single thing that she needs to be, you know, healthier. I went home from the hospital. I wasn't lying. Like nobody would have ever said, are you taking your medication? Because nobody would have thought I wasn't like, they would have been more scared that I was going to like chug the bottle. It was like a couple days in and somehow I had this understanding that I was like a train, like about to hit a wall, like at a hundred miles an hour. Like I was about to crash. I just saw that somehow. And I called my husband at work and I was like, when you get home, I haven't been taking this mess in. Please make sure I take, he goes, we'll take it now. And I was like, no, I actually need for you to get home because I need you to check under my tongue and make sure that I really took the medicine because I, I really didn't trust myself to take it. So, you know, talking about this, sometimes I just daydream out of it because it must just be more painful, even though it never happened. <laughs> yeah. Then talking about that connection and those memories. Yeah. And I was in a coffee shop before COVID and I saw these moms sitting around, these young moms, and they were talking about screen time. I give Bobby 20, you know, whatever their child's name was. And then somehow they were talking about food, you know, what they pack for food. And there was part of me that wanted to go mm. over to them and say like, guys, don't worry. This is no big deal. If you give your kid a hot dog, they'll be okay with all those nitrates. And then I had this moment of real understanding that you know, we kind of make these rules of what's being a good mother, you know, a good mother, is somebody who's always playing with their child and only lets them be on their screen for 20 minutes. A good mother only feeds organic food. A good mother, only a bad mother wouldn't breastfeed. A good mother's always breastfeed. And we make these rules that we torture ourselves with. But I finally understood that like, we almost do it because we have to, because the whole idea of being responsible for this life is so vast and so overwhelming that these kind of rules of what's being good and bad and weak and strong, they're like guardrails. That's right. We need them. If we did that, then okay, they're safe. They're safe. They're safe. But you know, 
you can't prevent cancer cells from mutating. You can't prevent cars from hitting you when you're on your bike. Like you actually can't prevent those things. But thinking about that and understanding that is so horrifying that you go like, he can't have a regular Oreo. Right. I can prevent him from eating a hot dog. Yeah. You don't think about it consciously that that's what it is, that it's like somehow negotiating with God. Like, you know, you're negotiating with death. Like if I stand here and don't move, you know, will everything be okay? And you can't as a mother. And I think that if we all let ourselves speak about that in those terms, I've been really anxious lately and on top of my kids, what does that really mean? And then we realize that screen time sometimes is just about screen time, but sometimes it's about just our own anxiety or feeling like we're not doing enough. And if we can start to understand what we're really saying and feeling, what it actually really means, and if we actually listen to our friends and think about what that means for us, everybody in every coffee shop understands to varying degrees these feelings. The book is heartbreakingly beautiful. I know this movie will be too. And the movie A Mouthful of Air, starring Amanda Seyfried, is out today in 800 theaters, I think you said, Amy. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Please go see it so they keep it in the theaters. <laughs> I know I'm always waiting. I'm always like, oh, I'll wait for it to come out on streaming. And I'm like, this isn't going to come out on streaming for like a year or so. So go see it. Go to the movies. Go see it. Support women making art. Amy, thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. Are you looking for ways to make your life easier, your home less chaotic, and at the same time, add more joy to your life? My name is Deanna Yates, and I'm the host of Wanna Be Clutter Free, a podcast all about letting go of the stuff we don't need in our lives so that we can focus on what truly matters. Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to throw it all away or make you feel guilty about keeping something you love, no matter how many other people don't quite understand it but I will give you practical and more importantly, actionable advice so that you can make progress right away. And you won't just hear it from me. There are amazing guests too. It's like having your bestie in your pocket, telling you it's okay to let go of the things that are not serving you and your family in a totally non-judgmental way. So join me over on the podcast where we can work on progress over perfection for those of us that want to be clutter-free. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us.